you break into the venture capital world, well, today we talk about one person's story, Katul Patel, and how he took his interest in startups entrepreneurship and ultimately landed in venture capital, where he now works at Headline as an investor, and Headline is a global venture capital firm. See, Katul started at larger startups and then slowly moved downstream and ultimately ended up in the venture capital world by working with uh, a relative. And through that experience, he learned a lot about uh, what it means to be in venture capital before moving to a larger firm. So Katul kind of shares his journey, his experience, what he's learned, and is very honest and open, right? He's earlier on in his venture capital career. So he's very open about where he is in this process, what he still has to learn, and how he went about getting his foot in the door and ultimately becoming a venture capitalist. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast featuring the Katul Patel. Are you interested in growing and scaling your business? Welcome to the Silicon Alley podcast, where you'll hear from entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and top performers on what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll walk away with actionable insights you can apply in your own business and life. Now to William Glass, the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. Katul, welcome to the Silicon Alley podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Thank you, William. It's a pleasure to reconnect. It is. It is. Um, man, I appreciate you sitting down. We had a, a good conversation a couple of weeks ago and um, have some other mutual, mutual connections uh, as well. So um, I'm excited to dive in because we started to touch on a little bit on our first conversation, you know, what drives you, why you ended up in, in, uh, in the VC world. Um, and you've had a really interesting background in tech. So really excited to dive in. But I'd love if you could give a little, little context. You were a hockey player back in the day. Is that right? Yeah, I was. So I played very competitively growing up, like since I was four or five to um, like through high school. I played for a couple of years in college. It wasn't NCAA, so it wasn't like the most competitive, um, but it was club. We didn't have a NCAA team, probably would not have made D1 either, but played with and against some uh, current like former uh, professional players and D1 players and things like that and still play to this day just in like a rec beer league here in St. Louis when I can so still trying to stay involved. That's awesome. That's awesome. What uh, what position do you play? What's your uh... So I started off playing defense. Um but I think I always kind of had the offensive bent and so then I switched to offense and left wing in high school. Um but then also kind of played both. So I was like on and off uh, the wing and D in, in high school, the last two years. Nice. Nice. So talk to me about like, you know, you got hockey, like give me a little background on your journey. And, um, I'm curious, like what you've learned playing and still playing hockey and how that kind of translates into like who you are and what you've decided to do career-wise. For sure. Um, so yeah, I told you I started playing young and it was always a pretty big part of my life. Um, I think it was a huge, commitment required for my parents especially because like when you're that age um it's a lot you know you, you have practice sometimes early in the morning and you have tournaments and my dad definitely had to spend a lot of weekends just driving me around and obviously kind of sacrificing a lot of his own time um to make sure that I'm playing at a very high level and so that was like a consistent kind of theme throughout my youth and leading into high school as well and when I played for a high school team but also for a club team um, but I think really the friends that I'd made um, were were very important to me. And so it was like I always had my own social group in high school, middle school. Then I had my hockey friends and it kind of just added a completely different angle 
to my life from, from the perspective of meeting different people and kind of being involved in different spheres. And I also didn't look like a lot of the other people who played hockey growing up uh, throughout my time. I mean, it's a very white sport. Uh, still to a degree is very homogenous. Um, and so there's not many like younger Indian kids playing um, hockey growing up. Now there are a little bit more, especially in central Jersey where I'd grown up. It's a pretty big Indian um, hotbed. But uh, yeah, so it was it was interesting from that perspective as well, just inherently like looking different from most of the other kids playing. But how did you uh, how did you get into hockey? Like, if, you know, to your point, like, you know, not a lot of not a lot of Indian kids play hockey. It's, <laughs> you know, I, I assume it's not a crazy popular sport, uh, you know, over in India as well. So like what like what drew you what drew you in? Because You started young. Five is young. <laughs> yeah, no, it's honestly still a little bit blurry, but apparently i was like probably three or four my brother was playing in the local roller hockey rink in our town like five minutes down the road from where i'd grown up and i just watched him play and i really liked it um and then there was someone who had encouraged him to get on the ice and do the ice version of roller hockey um and just play ice hockey and so he started that and i just kind of wanted to follow along and at the time i'm like i want to do this too even though he was two and a half years older at the time. And so that's when we kind of transitioned from roller to ice hockey. But yeah, that was it. Apparently I was just watching him play at the roller rink. I'm like, this looks cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Follow, following the, the, the older brother. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And sorry, I apologize. I cut you off. You were about to transition in, into what you've been learned, what you learned, right? And oh yeah, no worries. I mean, yeah, that's just one thing that I, I think um, was also important to take out of I guess not just hockey it kind of transcends sport in general. It's just like doing anything competitively with other people where you're all kind of focused on a common goal. There's inherently this understanding of working towards a vision, kind of playing to your strengths and weaknesses, understanding that not everyone on the team is going to have, you know, the same skill set, but leveraging what you can do very well to try and help your team win. In this case, literally win, but you know, you can take lessons from that and put it into a business context where you're trying to work towards something and you want to, you know, whether it's beat competitors or um, create a better product. I think there's a lot that transcends the game that I was able to draw from it. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. I'm, I'm competitive, played competitive soccer growing up. So a lot of the same things, sacrificing, you know, weekends and every weekend was a tournament or trip somewhere and, uh, and, and traveling. And like you said, you end up developing these relationships, both, you know, in your school setting, but also, you know, within the team. So yeah, absolutely. it's impactful. It's impactful. All right. So, you know, big hockey players still playing. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, how you ended up in BC. Talk a little bit about the early career, right? Because you you joined Jet.com initially. Um, like what got you into startups and into technology? For sure. Um, so I would say, honestly, going back to my high school days, I'd seen like, you know, for better or for worse, I think that I had I was looking at who was the most quote unquote successful, right? Like how do people make a name out of like for themselves, um, you know, whether it's building something or joining some prestigious firm or whatever it might look like. And I saw a lot of these people had like the common denominator was that they'd started their own companies and there was like some entrepreneurship involved in like building something from scratch. And that's how they ended up creating a lot of value. And I think going into college, I'd seen a lot of my peers would try and, or a lot of did go into finance and consulting and more traditional routes, but I'd always had that interest in trying to build something from the ground up. 
And so I joined the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Club at Vanderbilt. Um, I tried to surround myself with people who were interested in startups and tech, like genuinely, not just like, oh, it's cool to be a founder and be an entrepreneur. And that's something that gives me some clout and puts some weight to my name. It's There's a real kind of um, interest, I think, just in technology in a way that people could really in two years build something from scratch and grow it and build a team around them. Um, then of course, you know, um, there's that lucrative um, element as well. It's like, you can create a lot of value, you can sell it. And I thought that that was something that was so compelling just because at that time, the tech scene was just still like in this nascent stage in terms of like SaaS and consumer and things that were happening then, but there's just so much opportunity. And so I wanted to really kind of immerse myself in that. So dating back to high school, but then I think it matured a little bit when I was in college. And I thought that, you know, you need a real kind of crystal vision around what you're trying to build if you actually want to create a startup. No, absolutely. Yeah. Make, makes a lot of sense seeing those outcomes and people actually building something that's valuable and then obviously getting a great economic upside, um, having a lot of success. So you started to get interested in entrepreneurship, tech. What what led you to to go the route that you did, right? Because there's a lot, a number of different ways that you could have gone coming out of out of college, right? Yeah, I was completely lost, honestly, like my sophomore, junior, and to a degree, my senior years of college as well. Like I told you, I had a lot of my peers were getting ready to go into finance and consulting or law school, whatever it is. It seemed like everyone besides me had like the set path, and so I was like, well. I think I'm really smart and talented. Like, I feel like I should have a more kind of crystallized understanding of what I want to do with my career. And so I was like a little bit of in a troubled state at that time because, you know, I just felt a little insecure. And I'm like, well, why don't I really want to go into finance? A lot of people are doing it and, you know, make decent money. And, you know, people like to say that there's exit opportunities after you can go out and do other stuff. But I just never really truly was into that. And I had done the whole circuit, like preparing for finance interviews and reading all those manuals and did interview <laughs> with a couple of the big banks and whatever, but was never something I could truly kind of wake up to in the morning and get excited about. And so I just started to kind of become a little more honest with myself. And I think more serendipitously, I had encountered um, this job opportunity with Jet through a mutual friend who had pretty much said, hey, you know, I have someone who's at jet.com. They're apparently hiring a huge cohort of people straight out of school. If anyone's interested, just here's a link, sign up and, you know, apply. And that's exactly what I did. And I didn't really know much going into it, but I had applied and like, this is really interesting. You know, um, it wasn't a true startup role because they had been acquired by Walmart already. But I think there's so many, um, there's a really interesting dynamic of like being still in a startup kind of environment, but within the context of, you know, the fortune one and in Walmart. So that was really kind of invaluable as a first rule out of college to see how that all unfolded. And there's like an integration happening at the time and all that. Um, so while it wasn't like I was joining an early stage startup that was trying to make a name for itself, it's already established and it got acquired for, you know, $3 billion. So um, there was still a lot to learn um, in that process for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You almost started at the uh, the exit, right? Like, here's what happens after you've successfully built a startup and sold. And then now what happens? How do you work with and acquire? How do you integrate? How do you continue to grow? What is that kind of, you're almost at the later stage exit is where you started. Yeah, it's almost like there's like that whole second journey um, or like an afterlife to after you get acquired by a massive company. Um, what does that entail now? It's like you have to merge old systems. You have to kind of get everyone on the same page. And Walmart, I think like the legacy Walmart at least is, you know, a little bit conservative and 
wasn't at the time the most digital and tech forward, but of course the jet acquisition helped them really shift the paradigm in terms of how can we really compete with Amazon and become tech first. Yeah, no, absolutely. Anything in particular that you like really took away or lessons that you learned in that, that kind of first, first step out of college into the startup world and probably that working in a company of that size isn't for me, honestly, (laughs) Um, doesn't mean that, you know, it was not a very valuable experience, which I think it was, but there was a lot of, I think monotony to my job, which I had not expected. And even to this day, I feel entitled even saying that, like, of course, you know, there's going to be some things that you don't want to do. And I totally understand and appreciate that, but I just didn't feel like I could make an impact in any way, unless like I wanted to be some kind of superhero who just, you know, is really adept at climbing the social or the the corporate ladder. Um, but I didn't think that that was me. And, you know, frankly, I, if you were to ask someone um, who I'd worked with at the time, they would probably say I was a C player at, at Jet Walmart. And that's totally fine because I learned a lot in my 14 months there. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. It's almost just as important to learn what you don't want to do and what you don't like doing as it is to figure out what you do, right? It's, it's uh, yeah. understanding that and, and where you can thrive. And so you then go and join a, a startup that, uh, that also later becomes a, a unicorn, unicorn, right? So talk to me about that. What, what was the move to Paxos like? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, like I said, around that time, 14, 15 months into my jet uh, job, I'd realized I'd wanted to leave and kind of do something maybe a little earlier stage, like a smaller company where it probably could make a little bit more of an impact. And I've really wanted to see that journey of like, what does it take to actually scale and grow a company? You know, going back to my high school days when I was so intrigued by people who had built something that had a lot of value. I'm like, if I want to kind of see that from a front row perspective that I need to join a company that's at an earlier stage. And so I'd always been interested in blockchain and um, crypto, especially at that time, it was very much at its nascent stage and still is to a degree. It's like the wild west out there. Right. But yeah, at the time, I mean, it was very compelling to, to get into a company like Paxos, which had gone through a couple of fundraising rounds and was growing super quickly. And they had a crypto exchange. They had also recently launched a stable coin. So there's all sorts of exciting stuff that I would be able to dive into. And so I took the job there um, again, not knowing much of what I was getting into, but uh, I knew that I would get to touch on a lot of different parts of the business that was pretty inherent to that role. Um, so it's strategy, it's operations, it's internal facing, it's external, it's working on really kind of on the ground in the weeds type projects, but also getting that exposure to the high level. I thought it was a great breadth of experience there. Yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity to learn and learn new technology stacks as well as getting the startup thing. Now, you mentioned a couple of times and I want to dive in. You mentioned that there's like in high school, college, there were a couple entrepreneurs or people that you were following that uh, that kind of piqued your interest right in the startup world. Who are those people that you kind of look up to when you think about like entrepreneurs that that kind of sparked your interest? Honestly, it wasn't even like these, I just read in the news of some, you know, founder who went off and in three years exited his company for millions of dollars or whatever. It was more like the people who were closer to me who, from more, it was more tangible because I would see like, oh, this person had graduated from the same school as I did. And they're now currently running their own company and, you know, working um, with a team of 20 others. 
And it's like, that was to me a little bit more, I guess, accessible and it felt closer. And so those were the types of people who had inspired me as opposed to your typical, like, oh, I saw that Mark Laurie sold his company for $3 billion. Let's go and try to do that over the next couple of years. It was the people who I had within, not necessarily my direct circle of, of individuals, but people who are related to me in one way or another. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Thanks for that context. So yeah, you were actually seeing people that you knew or knew by, you know, one degree, one degree away that actually had that impact versus, you know, the, the articles about, uh, about all the people that are always featured on <laughs> as the top, as the top guys and gals. So yeah, yeah, for sure. So getting back to Paxos, were you, did you have, so you were kind of interested in this crypto space, like, was that something that you were already drawn to, or just, it seemed cool stuff, like new cool stuff going on? Like, what was it besides just the startup that you were like really excited about when it came to, to Paxos? Yeah. Um, I think at the time, a lot of people like myself, like the only exposure they'd have to crypto would be like Bitcoin. And so I had a couple of friends from, from college who were just really shouting about Bitcoin, um, even for several years before I joined Paxos. And so I had kind of looked into it from there and I thought it was really interesting, of course, but still kind of thought that, you know, it was a little bit farcical in certain ways. Um, but then I took it more seriously once I actually started interviewing with um, Paxos and looked into the space a little bit more. But that was really, I didn't know the technical stuff under behind like Bitcoin and blockchains and things like that. I didn't really know what the good, like big enterprise use cases were going to be or anything. Yeah, it was just, sure. you know, this is a technology that is obviously making some noise, but quickly you kind of realize it's probably here to stay. And so I thought that, you know, like, what if you're in the internet um, when the internet was in its nascent stage? And of course, there was a ton of noise around that as well. A lot of those companies failed and, you know, um, but I just thought that it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I say that at risk of sounding melodramatic, but it really was like, this is the time that you want to get into a space like that. Even if you're only working at a company like that for one or two years, I think that in the grand scheme of things could feel like five or 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The, all the all the memes or gifts that go around, right, of people in regular time versus you know, in a Web3 crypto NFT land. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> aging aging extra fast. <laughs> yeah, you still see it, right? I mean, um, there's, a, there's a ton of buzz and definitely some people who are looking to capitalize on that by slapping, you know, Web3 NFT crypto onto whatever they're working on. But it is what it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. So anything that in particular that you really took away from that experience being at, you know, now moving downstream, right? You started at the uh, kind of exit at Jed and now you're moving downstream of, of a startup that's in that scale and growth phase. What did you learn or take away from that ex experience? Any, anything in particular? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it sounds plainly obvious, but it's very difficult, um, especially like, I think some of my most valuable um, things that I worked on at Paxos was when I was working directly like with the management team or um, with like the founders themselves. And I'd realized that you really need to get people on the same page, you know, whether you're a 10 person company or a hundred person or your fortune 500, like to communicate a vision and to make sure that everyone's on the same page, especially when you're going through a hyper growth phase and scaling super fast is like such an art. You know, it's, it's just not easy. And it's like the way that you communicate with your leaders and the way that they communicate with the people that they're managing, like all those things are so important. 
when you're trying to grow. And that's, I think, one of my big takeaways, just like based on the projects I was working on. Um, and that's something that I thought was super important, especially when you're hiring too. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Right. That's, um, I've heard that. And I mean, everyone kind of has their own definition, but like as a, especially as a founder, there's like three things that you're responsible for. It's like holding the vision and values. It's uh, editing the team. So hiring, firing, making sure you've got the right people on there um, and then getting the necessary resources, right? Fund, whether that's funding sales, whatever that is, like those are the three things that, uh, that you're kind of responsible for. And that vision is like key because all the rest, you know, yeah. if you don't have that vision and values, then how are you going to be able to get the right people on board and then right partners, right, right customers, right investors? Like it just, it, it all starts from that, that vision and then being able to communicate it too. Exactly. Yeah. So tell me from there, what happened next? So you've got this experience at Paxos, you've, you're getting, you're getting, uh, this, this experience at the scale company, seeing what it's actually like to be in the startup world. Um, talk to me about what happens next. Yeah. And so I really liked what I was doing at Paxos. I actually did not plan to leave. Like I got promoted pretty early, like six or seven months in, and I was starting to work on some really cool stuff. And obviously a really cool time at the company, considering all the products they were launching and how fast they're growing and going through fundraises and all that. But then I, again, I just seemed to get kind of pulled out of it. Um, but I had come across an opportunity with a family member to actually start something from the ground up. Um, and so probably in July or August of 2020, or no, 2019, um, my cousin had reached out to me and just kind of told me about this, um, basically investment firm that he was trying to build. Um, so at first I was just like, okay, I'll hear him out. And I didn't think that, you know, there was anything much that would come out of it, but we talked about it for a couple of weeks and he introduced me to an idea that I thought was super compelling. And it was tough because I, you know, I just kind of found my groove at Paxos and I was really just getting closer to that ability to come super close to actually building something um, and to really kind of harness my interest in entrepreneurship and startups and all that. But the more that I talked to my cousin, his, his name is Jay, but the more that we talked about what he was trying to do and the more interested I got. And then he pretty much uh, offered to, to give me an offer to join um, him on, on his endeavor and be what was essentially like the first investment associate on this team that he was, uh, that, or for this firm that he was building that would um, be hyper-focused on investing in IT services companies. And then I left Paxos and joined him there. And we ended up calling the company Eximer Capital. That's awesome. So yeah, I, I mean, opportunity presents itself and that's, that's fantastic that you're in a position, right? That you could, uh, that you could take that leap. So what was that like? So you, you've been in, you've been in the world, the startup world, and now you're switching to the side of investing in a very specific, like subsegment of, 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 uh, of companies in the tech space, right? IT services, right? Which is, I mean, there's a ton of different firms out there that <laughs> IT services companies. So like, talk to me about that transition. And then also like, how did you, how do you stay focused on what are the great opportunities in the space? The transition was very interesting. And like, I don't have a finance background. He recognized that. I think he knew that, you know, uh, it's going to be very difficult to hire like an ex-investment banker or private equity person to, to do this. You know, there was no portfolio. They were starting from scratch. It's like not a very sexy industry that they're investing <laughs> in. So it's like, I'm not going to go hire some analysts from Goldman to, to join me and build Eximer Capital, right? So 
I think he'd recognize that I had always been intrigued by this idea of building something from the ground up. And he and I are pretty close. Like we're consider us very good friends as well. So there's a certain element of just candor and transparency in the way that we talk to each other. And so he thought that I'd be someone who's willing to take this risk and go do that. And after I talked to him, the more I was sold um, on his vision. And of course, I'm in a very, in this context, I'm in a very privileged position. I totally understand that not, not many people have some family member who's going to approach them and say, hey, I'm building investment for him. Do you want to come join me? Right. So I, I, I totally get that. But at the same time, I think that I was willing to take on a lot of risk. Like think about, I was thinking about like, hey, I can stay at Paxos, a very fast growing company that, you know, can do a lot of big things in the world of fintech and blockchain and what have you. Um, but I also saw the upside with this other opportunity where I can actually help build something. So it's entrepreneurial, not from the perspective of building a tech startup, but building something that can make a massive impact on other companies. Right. And so I joined him. Um, and so I was the first associate on the team per se, and really it was a team of two at the time. And we had <laughs> out two um, operating and, and capital partners as well. But really the day-to-day -day work was just me, just him. So my first um, six, five or six months purely focused on just going out there, sourcing companies, finding IT staffing and IT services companies that could fit our thesis, which was a very specific strategy that we had, which I can go into a whole, a whole other conversation around that too. Um, had to teach myself a lot of the basic finance. I'd known the accounting and basic, you know, finance principles, but I had to learn a little bit more in depth, like how to um, model financial scenarios and all that. And so that's something that I taught myself probably within two or three months. And yeah, I mean, that it was the first two months, it was very ambiguous, which I think I'm someone who can thrive in ambiguity. And I like that as opposed to super structured, like you're going to do X, Y, and Z every single day. But, you know, I was like 24 years old and was talking to all these CEOs, you know, on, on day 30. And I was supposed to convince them that I was the right person to buy their companies. So that's like a tall task, you know? and so a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, I was like, you know, of course I didn't say anything, but in my head, I'm like, I should not be doing this. I can't be the one who's telling this 50 year old IT services CEO who's been running his company for 15 years that we should buy his company and we can help him grow it even more and exit at a higher valuation in three days, but or three years. But you know, eventually you just get past that. And the more you do it, the more confident you get in your ability to really um, you know, add value. And so that's kind of what happened. Yeah, no, I mean, that's it sounds like learning, learning a lot. How did you get through that imposter syndrome? I appreciate you, you know, kind of opening up, like you know, you said just doing it more, but was there anything that really like helped you so that you could have those conversations? Yeah, I think that. At the time, Jay and I would have nearly regular conversations because, you know, there's not so much to be done when you don't have a portfolio and you aren't working on actual investments and aren't going through live deals. So a lot of what we were doing was sourcing, which I was mostly handling, but then also just talking about the industry, about, um, you know, like greater market trends and what he had seen in the past. And he's like very immersed in the space. And so he knows a lot. But still, at the time, he too was, you know, um, just five or six years removed from college. But he had that experience. He was um, leading uh, M&A at Brilio, which is another big IT services companies, uh, company out in California. But so he had contacts and we would talk and I would try and absorb as much as I possibly could. Um, and then I think I did a pretty good job of that. And so I felt like after month four or five, I was not necessarily an expert in the space, but I had 
arm myself with enough knowledge to go out, have a very educated conversation with, you know, um, people in the space um, and feel like I had enough, really also just having a few talking points um, that suggest that you can add value to these people is important, you know? Yeah. So that's something I developed. Absolutely. What was that first deal like? Do you, if, I mean, you don't have to, if whatever you can share, if you can't share details, that's fine. But like, you know, what was it like getting that first deal? You know, it felt good. Um, it, the first five or six months, like I said, it was all about going out there and finding the right companies. And I guess just to give more context on, on what we were trying to do, it's like at first we had this very narrow specific strategy of investing in not just an IT services company, an IT staffing company that had a certain revenue profile, that had a certain um, capability, had a certain like niche around a geography or a tech stack or whatever. So buy one of those companies and then pivot that from IT staffing into IT services. Um, and there's like a whole like financial angle there as well that we don't need to get into right now, but like <laughs> that's reflective of what um, his dad had done in the past where he had started an IT staffing company and spun out an IT services company from it, like moved out to Silicon Valley, rebranded it. Um, and then that got sold to Bain Capital. And so that was like the impetus behind our whole um, Eximer Capital thesis is let's do that on a bit of a smaller scale. We can go out and find IT staffing companies, convince them that a lot of them already think that they need to go into services to get that higher margin profile and to stay, you know, somewhat relevant in a very commoditized and fragmented space. And so that's what we were trying to do. Um, and then we quickly realized that there weren't enough IT staffing companies that fit the profile. And I literally have a spreadsheet of probably every single one in the US um, and a lot overseas as well. And so we realized that we need to open it up a little bit and not be so um, granular in our strategy. And so then we also started looking at smaller IT service companies and um, ended up investing in you know a couple that we were very excited about. Um, so it was a little bit uh it, it wasn't a linear journey by any means but of course when that first when that first uh deal happened we were thrilled and we thought we were um getting a really good deal and i think that it just shows that you have to stay a little bit flexible but the original kind of thesis was to get it staffing companies and exit them as it services companies got it got it yeah thanks for explaining that that context it's, yeah it's super very niche very niche <laughs> especially if you're niching down within the it staffing world right as well and and who's got to focus on geographies or specific uh tech stacks so. yeah for sure <laughs> makes it uh makes it tough so interesting so what like you, you're going through this process like how how big do you guys get to like eczema capital to like what does that that kind of growth look like beyond the first five six months so what sold me on joining um, Jay and, and what would then become Eczema was this notion that, you know, this is something I'm going to work on for the next 10 to 15 years. We're going to become a $1 billion plus AUM investment firm. We're going to totally change the game in the, in the um, realm of IT staffing and IT services. We're going to help these IT staffing leaders, you know, um, exit as IT services companies and make a lot of money and we'll make a lot of money in the in the process of course right but we failed that that's kind of what the goal was to just become this massive investment firm and we were not able to do that we did a couple of good deals that we were very excited about um, but we one weren't able to execute in a strategy of just churning out 
um, IT services companies that we had switched their models from IT staffing. And then we had another kind of more complicated situation with one of our partners at the time who was going through his own thing. Um, and that put us in a precarious position where we had really re relied on the operating expertise of you know, a couple of our partners. Um, and so if we lose that, then that becomes difficult to take a controlling stake in these companies. And, you know, you, we can't pivot their operating models without a real seasoned operating leader who had done that in the past and really truly knows how to execute on that. And so once all that had happened, we were kind of in the state where, you know, well, how can we keep this kind of alive? Maybe it's not about controlling majority stakes. It's about taking smaller minority stakes in companies, but making more investments. But then I think the more that we thought about it, the more we realized that that wasn't feasible. So I guess that that strategy is, I would say, on pause to, to a degree. But I think that, you know, we had not, we weren't able to, to do what we'd set out to do, which for me was tough, honestly. Like, I mean, I, I told you that I, I had left Paxos and things were looking very, um, optimistic from what I'd learned and what I was doing and, you know, to, to join, um, Eczema, I don't absolutely don't regret it, but at the time I definitely beat myself up over it a little bit because we weren't, it was out of my control as out of Jay's control. Right. But, you know, things just did not, um, shake out the way that we had planned and we fell short for that reason. But, you know, that's I think tough. that, yeah, it, it was tough at the time for sure. So that's kind of how it ended up very different from how we thought it would on day one. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, the journey's not over, right? Uh, as you said, there's uh, who knows what will happen right in the future if you decide to go back there. So you end up having this partner leave, who is a big part of the entire strategy and the whole the whole business model operating partner, and realize that this this isn't this isn't going to work right now. Um, what made you decide to stay on the the venture side, the investment side, um, versus getting back into kind of the startup? entrepreneurial side just yeah i mean i took a i took some time to really sit down and think about what i had actually wanted to do with my career and you know go, dating back to like the college high school days that i alluded to earlier where i was intrigued by tech startups entrepreneurship and all that i think at that point um it had only grown stronger i mean sure i'd worked in startups but now i had had conversations from the other side of the table where i'm learning about companies from almost like a bird's eye view and totally different perspective and looking at their PL to tell a story as opposed to, you know, a slideshow or whatever. Um, but it, for, for me, it was about trying to still, sorry, I just completely lost my, <laughs> I lost my train. We can, we can cut that out maybe too. Right. Um, yeah, all good. So yeah, so I still realized the passion was there for tech, for startups, for entrepreneurship. But now it's like, since I had seen things from the different, that different investment angle, I think honestly, I was more energized. Um, and I'm like, well, now I can try and get back into it. Um, and I know what it takes to a certain degree to build a company. I'd seen through conversations and analysis with founders and CEOs, like what some pain points are. And I know it's different, right? When you're talking about a services-based business, that's not extremely scalable, like a tech company that's selling a software product is, but there's a lot of overlap. Um, and so I'd seen like, you know, that different perspective from the investing side. And I thought after that, 
that venture would make the most sense for me just based on the startup experience that I'd had and then the investing experience. So it's, you know, I had to go out there and source companies and try and try and develop business and bring deals to the table. And of course, that's a massive part of what you do in venture and VC. Um, but I also kind of had to have the quantitative skills where I was it comfortable um, analyzing P&Ls and balance sheets and working my way through spreadsheets. And there's also like that art and science approach where when you're investing, I guess, depending on the stage of the company, but you know, you can look at the numbers and the, the spreadsheets and all that, but you also have to understand like the kind of more subjective nature of things, whether it's looking into a CEO or founder and building conviction in a person or building conviction to market and the way like the world is heading and all that. But the one thing that I didn't like the most about Exmer was that how hyper-focused and how niche it was. And so I'm like, well, maybe I can kind of leverage that to gain exposure to a more broad, to, to more in tech, right? Not just IT yeah. services, IT staffing. So that's something that really excited me at the time. And that's when I'd kind of started to plot out my next steps at the time. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I love that, that kind of awareness, right? And seeing that you liked being on that side of the table and, and the art and the science of, of figuring out whether a company was going to work or not work or, or uh, managing that. So what, what are some of the things that you've learned, right, when it comes to like that art science? You, as you said, didn't originally have that kind of finance background um, initially. So like, what have you learned and, and what are some things that uh, whether you're you know, an entrepreneur or you know, you're interested on the VC side, do you think is important uh, to, to note when you think about balancing the art and science of looking at the hard numbers and the, uh, the more subjective intangibles? Yeah, um, and it's interesting because my role at Headline, um, probably for like even to this day, it's very sourcing heavy. And like my first six or seven months with eczema was very sourcing heavy. So what am I doing day in and day out? I'm just meeting with founders um, and trying to learn about their business and ultimately gauge whether it's a good fit for the investment thesis. And so all I can do if I'm in that capacity, all I can do is really think to myself, is this person someone that we would want to invest in, right? It doesn't mean the person's like good or bad necessarily. It's just kind of a subjective judgment that you make. Um, and so like to that end, I didn't even have much to compare like the art to, right? Like yeah. at, at the time, even with eczema, like I wasn't running through spreadsheets and modeling scenarios and all that because we didn't have deals in front of us. Now with headline, I'm, I'm you know, I'm looking at um, data as well. We have an internal platform that helps us evaluate whether a company, you know, has quote unquote product market fit the way that we like to see it. Um, and that's like a platform that's bespoke to us, but we have that. So we can balance that against, um, you know, the more kind of art side of things, which is, do we think that this founder can, you know, raise money? That's one thing that any VC will kind of ask themselves, but more importantly, can they build a team around them? Like, you know, the, all the classic things, charisma, um, I guess even pedigree to a degree plays a role, right? Whether we like it or not, but we'll look for all the, all those things. But I think product market fit really trumps all. Um, and that's something that's extremely important to us, but balancing the art and science is something that I think was very intriguing about venture because you have to, it's not easy to, to make these types of predictions. Like I'm not 
um, a genius by any means, right? I'm not like an expert in this, but all I can do is try and make that that subjective call of whether you know this person is going to be a good fit for us to throw millions of dollars at. Yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. And yeah, being sourcing heavy, you get to have a lot of conversations with a lot of different uh, companies and people. Are there any like, I don't know if it's, if it's maybe it's red flags or things that like, you know, on the other side that like get you really excited when you have a conversation. I understand every company is different. Every entrepreneur is different, but are there certain things when you think about like, you know, signal or, or uh, what kind of piques your interest that, uh, that might be helpful for, yeah, for, to for degree, folks? like I ask myself that question. I don't even feel comfortable like asking myself that because I think being an entrepreneur is so much harder than being a VC. And like, you know, I'd, I, I, I'd reference having a little bit of imposter syndrome with eczema. To a degree, it's still there because I'm constantly talking to very, you know, compelling and talented and driven, ambitious founders. And I don't feel right when I'm asking or when I'm like in my head, even judge. Like, of course, you have to, it's all about judging, right? You're making judgments constantly, but. I still have that awareness that what they're doing is 200 times harder than what I'm doing. And it's a totally different beast building a company versus investing in it. I'm not saying that being a VC doesn't require skill. It absolutely does. But I don't even like to say, like, I don't like to make concrete statements about what I do or don't like, or what's the red flag. But I mean, there's obvious ones, right? There's like, oh, um, do they seem exceptionally arrogant? Like, I think some founders are just inevitably arrogant and some of the best ones might be, but are they exceptionally arrogant? Are they, you know, do you think they have a little bit of charisma? Do you think that they genuinely care about what they're building? And, you know, are they super passionate about it? Of course, I'm going to ask myself those things, but I still to this day don't feel comfortable like making sweeping judgments about what I do or don't like about entrepreneurs because what they're doing is so much harder than what I'm doing. At least I think so. Fair enough. No, yeah, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot there. Put you yeah, no, no, I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Um, that, that's just so, something that I kind of thought to myself. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. appreciate your, your honesty there. I'm curious, do you ever, do you see yourself at some point, you know, becoming a founder? You know, I really love what I'm doing with Headline. Um, the team is fantastic. Everyone who I work with is great. Um, and I've just learned so much in just the year that I've been with them so far. Um, so I really want to continue growing in the role um, that I'm currently in. And there's just so much more to learn. Um, I was, again, you know, like I, I said, dating back to when I was 17, 18, I'd always been intrigued of this um, potential to build something from the ground up. Um, and I think, you know, certain times I'll have conversations with founders where I'm like, wow, that really is energizing. And that kind of excites me. It's like, you know, I'll have like these little, kind of quixotic ideas come into my head about, you know, things that maybe you could build a business around, but I think acting on it is very different. Um, one thing that I'm trying to actually develop is having a little bit more agency. I think, you know, there's a lot of pretty smart, uh, pretty capable people out there. Um, but the difference I think between someone who actually ends up creating a lot of value is there's a different level of agency, right? Um, and so I think I want to surround myself by people who have that, but it's just, it, it, it makes things easier when every day I'm talking to very high agency people who are literally building companies. You know, if, if down the road, the opportunity presents itself or there's something I'm incredibly passionate about that I think a business needs to be built to solve that gap, then sure, I'll go and 
you know, see what I can do, but it's not like, oh, I, I have this, you know, vision of by the age of 30 or whatever it is, I want to go out and become an entrepreneur. I'm really learning a lot in my current role. And I love everything that I'm seeing in venture and in tech right now. And it just gets more interesting by the day. You know, it sounds a little bit arrogant to say that in a massive market downturn, but honestly, just massive opportunities present themselves in these types of scenarios. And so um, I, I will always have the entrepreneurial uh, bent, but I don't think that I have enough agency right now to, to, to go out and do that, which is something I will work on. Fair enough. Fair enough. So maybe down the line, it's not a, it's not an immediate thing or anything that you're, that you're actively like, I've got to do this by X date. It's uh it's, it's if the opportunity presents itself down the line, you're learning still growing still. And, uh, and who knows what the future holds. Yeah. Learning still. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you sitting down. Um, is there anything in particular that you want to share with the audience? I've, you know, asked a lot of questions. We kind of walked through your journey, but is there anything that you really want to talk about today that we that we didn't cover? Or anything you want to leave the audience with? Um, yeah, no, I think that that's that's kind of it. It's a very almost wonky kind of journey I've had, and you know, I'm not. Um, I still don't feel like I'm fully like established as a as a um, professional yet, and so I'm just kind of working at it day in and day out to to um, try and get better in whatever I'm doing. So that's it's been a little bit of a zigzag route, but I think that ending up in venture has been really good for me and I really love what I'm doing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Like I said, I really appreciate you you sitting down and uh, opening up and sharing your story, things that you've learned, challenges along the way and all that stuff. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, William, uh, it's a pleasure. And I, again, thanks for having me on. I um, thought that, you know, first conversation we had was really good and I'm excited to see where, where things go on your end too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if you're comfortable, like where can people, it's, I know we're not, we're not blasting out to a ton of people, but if anybody comes across this and wants to follow up with you, what's the best way to, to get in touch? Um, email. Um, I don't know if you have my email. Yeah. But email is great. Um, I think that's probably easiest. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sitting down. This was a lot of fun today. On your way out, please share the podcast with others. It's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs and top performers. And of course, pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a very profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying, I'll never leave this place. Some words got you searching from the bright side over and over.